Welcome to episode 143, The Truths of Transracial Adoption, Evaluating Impact and Considerations for Care, featuring Jacqueline Skelnick, licensed clinical social worker. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Iriez, and I am excited today to be talking about something I think really under-discussed and also very important. I am happy today to be joined by Jacqueline Skelnick. She is a licensed clinical social worker, and her specialization is transracial adoption. And so I asked her to be with us to discuss this and how this presents in therapy. So thank you, Jacqueline. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Beth. So tell us a little bit more about you and how you came to have this really unique and special area of focus. Yeah, that is a good question. I feel like every day um, in my personal life and in my professional life, I learn more and more about the reasons why I came into this space. Um, So I feel like so many of us feel some kind of pull into whatever area that we choose to be in. And when we have such a specialty or a niche, um, oftentimes there's some kind of a personal connection, right? And so for me, that connection was that I was adopted as an infant, um, transracially and internationally into a family into the Midwest. Um, And going through my entire childhood and adolescence and even young adulthood, um, there's awareness that you're adopted and there's reminders that you're transracially adopted. Um, but I feel like something was always missing. And so when I began to explore some of that on my first visit back to my home country, I realized that there was a significant need for people to acknowledge the challenges for transracially adopted families. That's the first step is just acknowledging that there's trans, uh, that there's challenges. I think our community and our culture celebrates the joys of adoption, and we should, Um, but we also have to balance that out by recognizing that there would not be adoption without significant loss. And so, you know, starting to learn a little bit more about that in my own journey, and then deciding that it was an area of academics that I really wanted to pursue, I ended up returning to college and pursuing a graduate degree in social work, which then led to um, me working for an agency in the actual process of adoption, which still didn't quite feel enough, Beth. So I was noticing more and more the need for post-adoption services. And so that led me to pursue licensing um, and now being in practice for um, about 10 years, exclusively working with individuals that were adopted and their families. Um, there's a, so much additional training. There's so much additional sensitivity, understanding basic terms like racism, systemic racism, um, privilege, all those things. I just feel, Beth, like so much of what I do is psychotherapy, but it's also psychoeducation. And so for me, that combination of being able to do both felt like a good fit for me professionally. Wonderful. Thank you for joining us to discuss this because for you, it obviously hits very close to home. So there's so much that we can discuss in this particular topic, but why don't we start just by having you define what transracial adoption means and also kind of the history of transracial adoption? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, I feel like the language that we use, especially it's so culturally based, but it's also an evolving process. Um, and right now, the word or the prefix of trans is something that's really being examined by lots of different community um, communities at the same time. Um, the term transracial um, is not indicative of an evolution of a person, more so the process by which a child, which is of race A, gets adopted by a family that happens to be race B. And so that process by which a child potentially loses their birth culture, birth uh, experiences, language, etc., and then moves into another community, another culture, that is the transracial piece as it relates to race. There's also... Um, Transethnic adoption, transnational adoption, and some of these are a little bit overlapping, but basically, I think what we're going to be talking about today is when an, a child of color predominantly is adopted by a white family or vice versa. And I'm curious if you know, I've heard it also called interracial adoption. Your preference is transracial. Can you speak a little bit about why that is? Yes. And I think for me, um, the definition, there's a difference for that in the sense that, for example, um, I identify racially as Asian. My husband is white. We consensually participate in an interracial marriage. So the consensual participation to me indicates interracial. Transracial meaning this child didn't necessarily consent, ask for, uh, or, you know, have any control over coming into our families. Therefore, we still are a multiracial family. But the adoption itself is transracial because we're adopting across lines. Got it. That's thank you. That's actually a really interesting answer. And I've never heard anybody answer it so um, clearly and cohesively. So thank you. Um, so in terms of the development of transracial adoption in the United States, when did that process really start in history? And how has that evolved over time to see us where we are now? Yeah, and I think the answer to that um, cannot be answered in one hour. I think if we Absolutely. want to summarize, um, I'm going to pull pieces. So there's the historical references, there's the critical race theory, there's um, the evolution of the American people. I mean, there's so many different contributing factors to how or where transracial adoption started. It's always been happening. Um, it's the legality or the formal institution of adoption um, that's been studied in, in probably the last, you know, half a century or so has been the most relevant to what we're talking about. Um, so in the United States, there are Oftentimes in the 60s and 70s, there was a movement, if you will, post-war, et cetera, where there were women who found themselves pregnant that were not ready or wanting to parent. Um, and oftentimes, if those children happened to be um, of a race other than white, um, those women faced different scrutiny than white pregnant women that were typically not married. And so the movement became so much that foster care started in process, adoption domestically is what it's considered. Um, and there was a whole movement of uh, black social workers who didn't feel it was the right choice to place black babies into white families. Um, that's, I think, what really brought this conversation to the forefront. And again, this is before social media and all those things. Um, and so there's quite a lot of controversy and there continues to be. Um, I believe the biggest element that contributed towards transracial adoption beyond the black-white um, racial lines is international adoption. And when international adoption started in South Korea, 
Many of these children were Asian or Amerasian because their fathers biologically were U.S. military folks that were in Korea at the time. Um, there were many women in Korea that found themselves pregnant, and those children started to emigrate via adoption to the United States. And that is really the birth of international adoption, which, again, is transracial because all these children are Asian or at least biracially Asian. And then it continued to other developing countries as an option or, quote, solution um, for their children versus institutionalization or orphanages. You're right. There's a lot here. We need much more, <laughs> more than an hour to discuss. <laughs> right. But thank you for, for throwing that out there. Um, so now that we've established, basically, here's what transracial adoption is, and here's kind of the the very quick cliff notes on where we are now. As you and I are talking about this, we are in the late summer of 2021. And there are now things out there that have increased awareness of this phenomenon. For example, the TV show This Is Us, that for many people, this may be their first exposure to what transracial adoption can look like. And for people who've watched this uh, show, the uh, evolution of Randall's awareness of what it meant to be adopted into a white family and this whole part of his identity. Can you speak to that identity development process? And is is there any standard timeline that you've seen in your work of, you know, if children are adopted within the first year of life, for example, here are some of the identity development markers that we see as they con- as they conceive and work through who they are as individuals? Right. Um, I, I'm so glad that you brought up that series, This Is Us, because you're right, I think it's the first um, commercialized acceptance of transracial adoption. Um, And everyone is going to be critical of how people do certain things or portray certain situations in society. Uh, As an adopted transracially person and an adoption therapist, I'm very pleased with how this show has really portrayed the good, the bad, and everything in between. I think sometimes sensationalistically, we we focus on one or the other. Um, But I feel like they really did cover a lot of the pieces in a way that it's not as threatening. And I think that's the key. When we're talking about race in general, if we want to promote awareness and inclusivity, we have to present the topic in a way that doesn't make other people feel threatened. And in my line of work, it's the white adoptive parents that oftentimes have that vulnerability or what I call fragility. Um, And so when we're looking at what are some of these markers of a child maybe struggling with identity or working towards exploration of that, it really starts well before the child can even verbalize what that feels like. It really has to begin with the adopting parents. It, I believe it is their responsibility to provide opportunities and resources to their transracially adopted child to learn about their birthright. Um, and and the, the key word there is learn. I think when we are born into families, we sort of learn by osmosis and by observation. It just becomes second nature. It's how we function. But when we're talking about transplanting a child from one race or one country to another, that process has to be intentional. And so the adoptive parents, it falls on them to make sure that that's happening. And what we've seen is that when that doesn't happen, that typical developmental stage of adolescence for any human being becomes exponentially more complex 
when someone is exploring who they are and what people expect them to be and coming to that place of accepting and being comfortable in our own skin. So some of those things may look like um, having an identity crisis. It may look like um, being opposed to interacting with anyone that looks like them, um, which sounds a little bit counterintuitive. But the reality of that is that some transracially adopted teens who haven't had exposure, who haven't had opportunities to come into relationship with people that look like them, they fear them because they don't know how to relate to them. They fear that they're going to be imposter syndrome because they look like them, but they don't act like them. And so a lot of these things are stereotypes and generalizations of cultures and communities, but the reality is um, so many transracially adopted children are whitewashed. And, I, and I, what I mean by that is that they grow up under what I call this umbrella of adoptive white privilege that they have because they're with their white parents. They can go places that families of color may not go. They can afford certain things, etc. cetera. Um, however, the moment that adopted person uh, separates from their family or goes off to college or isn't in the presence of their white parents, they're no longer under that umbrella. They're just perceived by the rest of the world around them as, oh, there's that black teen or there's that Latino young adult. And so some of these pieces really can be addressed so much earlier and more often than they're currently being addressed in adoptive homes. You brought up a point that I want to zoom in on a little bit, which was that element of white privilege. Adoption in and of itself tends to often be an expensive process and often an extensive process. In your experience and also in the research, if you know, is is that a huge part of this phenomenon that you have white families of privilege with financial means saying, okay, like this is this is an opportunity for me to take a child into my home and to have the family that I've envisioned, but then it leaves this blind spot um, because there may be a huge disconnect and often is in transracial adoption from where the child came from and the opportunities that they may have had in their home country and then what they have here in the United States. Yeah, you know, the financial and the socioeconomic systems that are in place in these adoptions that we're talking about play a huge, huge role, just like anything. Money plays a huge role. Um, and so to sort of break this down, I think there's a couple different categories that I would want to respond with. The first is that, yes, generally speaking, um, and I'll, you know, just in the United States, white Americans are among some of the most privileged community groups, right? And so that means financially, that means education access, that means resources, all kinds of things. So in that situation, that is why it's the, the majority of transracial adoptions are white parents to kids of color. Um, another component that people are afraid to talk about is the Christian movement of adopting orphans, um, which I also call the white savior uh, mentality, which um, can be really harmful, really harmful. I think it's done with well intentions. However, being called by a higher power or feeling like this is something you should do um, are not enough reasons for motivations to adopt a child of color or adopt a child internationally. Um, another important component that comes to mind is that there's infertility. Infertility is one of the leading factors to why adults 
consider adoption. And this is not going to be the popular <laughs> popular response, but oftentimes there's a sense of entitlement that comes not just with privilege, but with uh, the white adult that has also experienced significant loss and or infertility. There's this entitlement that they have the right to become a parent. Um, and, uh, you know, all those emotions aside, oftentimes if you have those elements, you have the money, you have the resources, you have the entitlement, you have all these things, adoption is one of the last options for so, so many families, not all families, but so many. Um, and so that part, of course, is not for discussion. I think adoption can be a solution for a problem. It's not the only. Um, but the other piece that I have always struggled with, Beth, is there are families across the world and in our own country that are struggling to provide for their children. If a family can spend, or if a pre-adoptive family can spend upwards of $50,000 to adopt that child, why isn't there a system in place that those funds can be funneled in a way to help preserve that family, help protect that child so they can stay in their natural environment, help that single mom or those or that widowed parent or whatever the situation is with resources so that there isn't the separation. I think ultimately that should be the goal. Ultimately, I should be out of a job. Um, but the reality is that this solution to this problem is something that also makes people feel good. And the consensus is that, wow, these adopted kids are so lucky. And wow, these kids have all these opportunities because now they're under the white umbrella of privilege. And to a certain extent, they're not wrong, Beth. But the the recognition that these kids are not lucky. These kids went through some of the most traumatic losses that any human being can go through to get to the place of adoption. In particular, transracial adoption. They lose so much more than just family. They lose culture and food and music and history and language and identity and customs. Um, none of those things can be replaced. Adoption does replace those things, but it doesn't restore what's lost. Thank you for being willing to talk about this side of it, especially with your lived experience. Um, so just thank you for the intimacy involved in this conversation and, and the vulnerability. Um, there is only so much you and I can cover in an hour. Um, tell me more about the cultural, the identity development impacts of being adopted in general, but then that additional layer of being transracially adopted and what we see of how this affects somebody's trajectory when they're doing, I, I joke about Zoolander, which the younger folk probably haven't seen, but when Zoolander sits there going, who am I staring in the puddle? Um, and you know, that that's, that that's a normal part of adolescent individuation and, and young adulthood, but how that trajectory is shifted with this additional consideration, number one of adoption, the number two, the other layer of transracial adoption. Yeah, and that's exactly what it is. Two layers beyond um, what we would consider typical developmental adolescent exploration. Um, this reminds me of the number one most frequently asked question for me um, that I thought would end when I became an adult, but it continues, is where are you from? And that question for a transracially adopted person um, is fully loaded, fully loaded. And in fact, if we're all being honest, somewhat triggering because number one, it reminds me that I'm not viewed as an equal an American citizen. It reminds me that um, 
I am the perpetual immigrant. It reminds me that maybe people feel like I don't belong here. It could just mean someone's curious uh, about where I'm from. But typically, the white American is probably rarely asked that question. And we're all from somewhere. We're all immigrants, right? But I think for the transracially adopted person, and this is equal for um, Black or African American adoptees, Latino Hispanic adoptees, Native adoptees, Asian, it's for all of us. We all experience this. And I, I think that when it comes to the identity development piece, it's a privilege for non-adopted people to be able to stay in their families because they know where they're from. They know where they get their nose from. They know where they get certain mannerisms and the traditions that get passed along to them from their ancestors. And so when those people hit the adolescent stage of development, yes, they're still trying to figure out all these things, but they have this foundation. They have the basement level understanding of where they come from. Many adopted people who don't have historical reporting information or even names of, or even a confirmation of what city they were born in, let alone their ethnicity or race, there's no basement level to build these different levels of the home. And when that's not there, it's very difficult to build well. And I think that's the number one thing that adopted kids certainly lose through adoption. On top of that is the layer of race. So I'm not sure if that answers your question, but I think that might be a start. I think it absolutely is a start. Um, in I'm just going to call upon this because it's such a, a common reference in the current pop culture. So the story of Randall was that he was adopted at essentially at birth, um, that he was left, I think, at the hospital or the fire station very soon after birth, and that this white family had lost one of their triplets during childbirth. And so here was this baby, and they said, we will take him home too. And, and that kind of sets the story. And for this, for the TV show, This Is Us, it's this bouncing uh, retrospective of like current day to 30 years ago to 20 years ago to three years ago to, to all of these processes. And in this last season in 2020 and 2021, we see Randall really wrestle with this. And I appreciate what you said, too, in the sensitivity of having these conversations. It, it's so difficult, particularly for white people to talk about race. And we feel threatened, you know, and there are, you know, it's a whole separate conversation yeah. about white fragility and everything else. Right. And that um, there's this continuing conversation uh, that that is evolving between Randall and his white mother about the oversights of, of where she didn't facilitate that connection. In your work, how do you see those differences change the trajectory? So for the often white adoptive parent or parents, caregivers to facilitate the connection to culture, race, family versus to say, no, that was back there. We're going to focus on the here and now. How do you see that play out? We have to acknowledge, we don't have to relive, but we have to acknowledge the past in order to be comfortable in the present so we can confidently move forward. And for adopted individuals, that past part is so important because it's a mystery for many of us. And seeking answers isn't going to heal any adopted person from the trauma, but it certainly will help that person process the how and the whys and all those things. Um, in one of the seasons of This Is Us, when Randall is exploring what college or university he's going to, um, his dad 
took him to an HBC, Historically Black College. And there's this moment of exhalation and relief when he's there. And I just got goosebumps talking about it because I can relate of just looking around and seeing people that mirrored him and him being so excited for this opportunity to learn what it means to be, not how to be, but what it means to be a Black man in the United States. And I think that was such a powerful scene, yes, because of what Randall was going through, but also on the side, what his dad was going through. So to answer your question, Beth, the first step that white adopter parents need to do is they need to A, recognize that transracially adapted kids do need specialized parenting. Number two, white adopter parents need to acknowledge their discomfort around race. Number three, white adoptive parents need to work towards becoming an anti-racist parent, not just in their home, not just for their child, but for all children. Um, And I could go on with this list, many, many points, but I think those are some of the most important for white adoptive parents to just get to the place where they can start doing things. And I work with families who skip one through three, but once a year on their child's adoption day, they order Chinese takeout um, for their Vietnamese adopted child. And that's supposed to be enough. Um, Number one, it's the wrong ethnicity and wrong culture. Number two, that's not enough. Culture is more than just food and having a pretty fan on your wall that symbolizes Asian modern decoration. Uh, It's about parents getting dirty. It's about parents being willing to go to this church across town where the majority of that community looks like their child, not just for racial mirroring, but for the opportunity, the human opportunity to form genuine relationships. So that child grows up, not just in their white family, but in their white family who also has meaningful relationships with people that look like them. Because not only is that good for the child growing up, but you are now fostering relationships where that child, when they're 16, can turn to Mr. Robinson from church um, who can tell him what DWB is so that black young man can understand driving while black and what they need to do if they're being profiled. Those things can't be taught by their white parents, no matter how well-intentioned they are. That statement itself can be really triggering, Beth, for white adoptive parents. And to be able to get them with support and compassion and empathy to a place where they can recognize you're right, no matter how much I love this kiddo. I am not enough and love is not enough. But what I need to do is use the resources that are around me, seek supports because I'm comfortable knowing my own vulnerabilities and my own deficits because all parents have them, not just transracially adopted parents. And the sooner we can get white adopted parents to recognize what they need, that village, if you will, I think the better those kids can grow up in their own identity. From a statistical perspective, if you know, approximately United States of transracial adopted adopted families, what percentage are white parents that have adopted non-white children? Probably ninety nine percent majority. Yeah, no, it's the vast majority. High majority. You know, in my twenty years of working in the adoption field, I think I've come across a handful of. where one parent might be um, a member of the BIPOC community and the other is white. And then even less than a handful where both adopting parents are a race other than white. Um, 
What's really interesting, Beth, is I was working once with um, a Black family. They identified as Black, and they wanted to adopt from an Asian country. And it was interesting how much pushback they were given by the agency at the time. Why don't you adopt one of your own? There are so many Black kids here in foster care. Why aren't you adopting them? You can provide them with same race things that a lot of other white parents can't. And it made sense. It makes a lot of sense. But the double standard is that when a white family wants to adopt from an Asian country or another country, there's no pushback. So we have to look deeper at systemic racism, the institutions that are created, who created them, um, and the biases that are put on the people who have power, the people who make decisions, the people, social workers who approve home studies. Um, And it's not to say, because more often than not, some listener or somebody will feel like they can say, well, any race of a parent would be better adopting this kid versus leaving them sit in an orphanage. That right there is the risk, is it? Because the concept for a lot of people, entitled people in the West, most likely, is that you're adopted, therefore you have a better life. That is not a factual statement, the percentage of adopted individuals that are abused and neglected in their adoptive families is something that we don't talk about enough. And so what I like to say from a factual perspective is being adopted gives you a different life, not necessarily better. And if we can sit with that and recognize that, I mean, you think about the savior concept, that just kind of knocks you down a couple notches, right? Um, Because realistically, and a lot of people are going to think this is negative, and trust me, I'm not anti-adoption. People will oftentimes say to me, is it bad to adopt? Am I doing this kid a disservice? And I, nobody can answer that, right? But the reality is, is we have to realize that when adults adopt, it is very selfish. It very much is, particularly for a family that doesn't have children yet. This is about what you want, Sure, we can mask it with, yes, but this child also needs a family, or we're doing this because this is the right thing to do, and we're called to care for orphans, and blah, blah, blah. But the bottom line is, none of these children have any input or control, for the most part. I'm glad you bring up that point, because it's it's true of all parents Mm -hmm. that this is absolutely, you know, we can hide behind a lot of altruism. (laughs) And there's also this reality that we had kids because we wanted something out of having children, like whatever that was. And that that is infinitely more complicated when you're talking about adoption. But I'm glad you bring up that point. To go back to something you'd mentioned, you talked about the rate of abuse within adopted families. Can you spend a little time talking about some of these statistics just to give a frame of reference of, you know, um, relative to non-adopted or non-transracially adopted children, what are the rates of uh, attempts for suicide, for example, or for depression, substance abuse? Can you speak to those differences? Because I think as clinicians, we have to start really zooming into that difference and appreciating that the the playing field is different. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Um, there are statistics, and you can't quote me on all the numbers specifically, um, but transracially adopted youth, so anyone under 18, are, are at a higher representation rate in mental health facilities than their non-adopted peers. Um, a lot of that, of course, is due to identity. A lot of that, of course, is due to the traumatic loss that they experience. There's a book that I love, um, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, The Body Keeps the Score, um, which I recommend to all adapting parents. 
that really emphasizes that we need to look at the loss that this child as a trauma, that this child experienced, even if they can't verbally remember, even if it was before cognitive anything, even if it was right at birth, like Randall, these individuals still have body memory of the most traumatic human loss there is, is being separated from their biological mother. And so I think that when it comes to those numbers, they are more highly represented. Now, of course, that could be because adopting families are already connected to agencies and resources, so they know how to reach back. And it could also be because they are socioeconomically able to provide post-adoption services. But the reality is that it's four times more likely for an adopted person to attempt suicide than their non-adopted peers. That that statistic is significant because if we can acknowledge that that is a fact, which it is, if we can acknowledge that there are adopted people who attempt suicide on a daily basis, but it's not always reported because if they're a minor and their parents don't want that information leaving their family, we don't hear about it. A lot of it has to do with depression and anxiety and not being felt, not being seen, not being understood. And the transracial adoptees in particular, who don't have access to their own communities. I mean, we think about how disconnected that must feel. I mean, as a white person walking into a room, you may not need to look around and survey who's there. As a person of color, I will tell you immediately within the first couple seconds, who are the other BIPOC members in this room? Who can I go to as an ally? Who might I feel safe with just based on physical features? The adopted transracial person does that all the time and it's exhausting. It's exhausting. So if I can even imagine, thankfully, I, I grew up and my parents did provide me with a lot of racial resources. Not having that, how lonely might, must that feel like for that adopted person? How lonely must they feel and misunderstood to consider taking their own life? Thank you. I, I know this is a, the, the dark turn in our interview, but also a critical part of this process. Because if we're seeing these children or adult children or families on our couches, we have to keep this part in mind as just an inherent risk factor. Um, yes. And as somebody who works predominantly with the queer community, it's the same thing. And you and I talked before we were recording about my own work with transracial adoptees, having worked in the Los Angeles area and, and seen, you know, the very phenomena that you're discussing. I'm curious, in a, so in a perfect world, if you have a transracial adoption with white parents, let's say, those parents, as you said, are getting dirty and are leaning into that awareness of privilege and the discomfort and working through their emotions and vulnerabilities and also creating opportunities for that child to connect to their culture and ethnicity and you know infinite factors about identity development. I'm curious, I have seen that happen myself clinically and I have seen the opposite happen where the white family says, nope, we're not going to talk about it. Don't bring it up with the child in therapy. You know, just nope, that door's closed and I'm positive it has no impact. <laughs> I'm curious, how do you address that? Very sensitively, very sensitively. Um, on the inside, Beth, I'm screaming and wanting to shake these parents to say, what is it about this step that is triggering to you that as a parent, you're not willing to do whatever it takes to promote well-being for your child. On the outside, 
I do want to show compassion and empathy because I feel like with a little bit of psychoeducation, most parents can get to a place of at least accepting, hey, this might be something I should explore. There are quite a few white adoptive parents that are resistant to this. And when I encourage them to dig deeper within themselves, right? The problem is not the child. When they dig deeper, it becomes about their own vulnerabilities. More often than not, they don't recognize that racism exists. They don't believe in white privilege. Because if you do, it's almost impossible to realize that our kids need need these things. Um, and this is where it falls to the responsibility of adoption agencies. There are agencies who require what's called pre-adoption training and education. And I believe it's two to three hours of transracial training. That is it. Two to three hours. What can we learn in two to three hours? Well, that opportunity. Well, I don't know. People are learning a lot in an hour. You're right. It's a good start. Um, but the families that have been resistant about this, it's really about their discomfort. It's about their disconnect. It's really about their saviorism that if I love this kid enough, because without me, they'd be on the streets. If I provide these things for my child, like their gratitude should not look like them wanting to find out where they're from. It should be about assimilating and wanting to be a part of our family. That's some of the ugly stuff. Now, I want to say that that's the minority um, of white adoptive parents. I would say that's at least half. And we're not in the 1970s right now. These are current families that are struggling with this. I, I actually have seen just about the same statistic in my work. Um, so that's interesting that you're on the other side of the country and you're seeing exactly the same phenomenon. There, there's so many directions that we can go. Um, from a clinical perspective, let's pretend you have one of those families that have not leaned into the messy parts uh, and to the discomfort. How do you you know, obviously psychoeducation, I'm guessing you meet alone with a caregiver or caregivers and do that side of it. How do you bring this up with the child? And how does that also change based on the child's developmental level in integrating this into your work? Um, I know that in, again, and I can only offer this comparison, but in my work with the queer community, that there's a lot more to somebody than just their queer identity. So I'm curious how you integrate and kind of let this nuance be part of the room, but not the only thing in the room, yes. unless that's what the client wants to do. Yeah. Um, and I do appreciate some of the comparisons to the popu the queer population, because I think we can name any number of disenfranchised community members. Um, and what we're all looking for is the same thing. We're looking for acceptance. We're looking to be included, right? So you know, in the last 10 years, it's diversity, 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 but it should be diversity and inclusion that we're fighting for. And so if we're pretending we're in my office and I'm sitting with this family and they're, they're at that point where they just aren't willing to recognize, number one, I'll have to say that a lot of the families that come to me, which are all voluntary, are pretty self-selective. They see a picture of me on their, on my website. They see my bio. I, I'm very, um, upfront about who I am what I believe in terms of anti-racist parenting and what I can provide for families. So I will say that if that's not for you, unfortunately, I lose those families and they go elsewhere. Um, one of the benefits that I can find is that oftentimes a child of color sitting 
in my office or playing with my dollhouse. All they need that first session is to see me. We don't even have to talk about adoption. We don't even have to talk about what it's like to be the only fill in the blank in class. I see this look from kids during first sessions and I know what they're feeling because I was once that child that was looking for someone who could get it, who can see me, who could feel me, who could hear me, that maybe even looked like me. And what I found is it's not just the Asian adopted kids, it's the black kids, it's the Latino kids, it's all the disenfranchised racial groups. Um, for some of these kids, Beth, this is the first time they're meeting a real person of color in real life. Like, oh, I've seen you on TV or oh, I this. And just that alone. And what's interesting is that I don't have to do much work those first couple of sessions because those kids can verbalize to their parents what that meeting felt like for them. Of course, that only gets us so far. On top of it, there's a number of training opportunities to become an adoption-informed clinician that I would recommend to anyone who is already working with this population or who plans to work with the population. It's a different skill set. It's a different level of understanding. It's like my son who has a heart defect, I'm not going to take him to just his regular pediatrician. I'm going to find the best damn cardiologist for him. It's that same concept. And I think that for the parents who need to hear that, for the parents who need to see it, it's very easy for me to show them research because a lot of parents want research-based information um, of the statistics of suicide, of the young adult groups that I run for social support the number of these kids who didn't have the racial exposure and opportunities growing up versus the ones that don't. Of course, there's going to be families that are still not interested. And those are the ones that, that I lose. They leave and they go to a white therapist or to someone else that could really cheerlead for them. And my role is to advocate for the kids, not to cheerlead for parents. With children, how do you open that conversation and how do you respond when the child does the, no, don't think about it. Oh, I don't notice. I'm just curious. I'm a firm believer in my practice. I will never correct, particularly a child. I will never correct somebody's response to a question. I say, how do you feel or what is it like? Because that's their experience. I want to honor that. But I do formulate in my mind very quickly the trajectory of, okay, but maybe we can consider these other perspectives or this is where I bring in, I marry a lot of my personal experience. When I was in middle school, I remember being the only kid who looked like this and I was too embarrassed to talk about it. I didn't want to, I didn't want to acknowledge how I felt. And maybe that's what you're dealing with and maybe not. Maybe you're just not aware. Maybe it's just not important to you right now. And so just giving the child that space to either hold today or in the future. Sometimes the work I do is just planting the seed. I'll have a kiddo come in and be in complete denial and unwilling to talk about their race and how it plays into whatever they're experiencing. And I'll plant the seed and I'll hear back from them or their parent four, five, six, seven years down the road. My kiddo just said that they wanted to come back and see you, right? So those are the pieces where I think talking to kids, giving them I call it the menu of feelings, right? So if you only know, or if you're in your home, you've only been given permission to talk about adoption in this way, here are some other options. None of them are right. None of them are wrong. But I do feel like kids should be given, kids need to be taught how to name some of their emotions. It's hard for adults to name the feelings that we have. It's I can't even imagine kids these days with all the additional <laughs> Uh, stressors and risks they have in their life with social media and et cetera. 
how do we talk about what we're feeling? And so that menu of feelings sometimes can be super helpful because I'll hear things like, oh, wow, like, so that's an actual thing. Like when I feel like somebody's staring at me, um, it could be because they're trying to figure out why I'm with these white people, right? So if that hasn't been introduced to them, if that hasn't been put out as an option, these kids, A, don't know that it's okay to feel like that and B, don't know how to name it. One of the points you brought up earlier was that idea sometimes from white parents of um, not feeling seen or heard or appreciated and that discussing these things is kind of a, a violation of their identity, of their family formation, if you will. I can imagine for adopted children, for transracially adopted children in, in particular, that talking about it then outside of that family system, when they're peeled away from it feels like an inherent violation. Like we don't talk about that. I, I'm supposed to be fine. I'm supposed this is I'm good. I'm good. Um, and the importance then of the clinician really making space and like you said, planting the seed, knowing what you know, how would the ideal transracial adoption occur? in terms of the training for the parents and the supports that you would have for a child. And this is not, this is just, let's say it's it's proceeding, this is what's happening, the family, the adoption agency, this is where we are. What would, what's the perfect world of how this would play out to help that child feel seen and heard and a part of their multiple communities? So I, even though I know you sort of put that disclaimer out there, I, I still feel like I have to say there is no perfect world for transracial adoption. There is no perfect world for adoption. If we're willing to see that this is the next best option, here's what that would look like. I can certainly answer that part of it, Beth. I feel like before a family is even in the trajectory for having a placement of a child, particularly a child of color, the work that they need to do as an individual, I believe, just like people feel like you have to have premarital counseling if you're going to get married, you should have pre-parenting counseling. Because here's the thing, the most important piece in adoption, particularly ad transracial when we don't look like um, our family, is the attachment piece. So all of us as adults have our own attachment style, and that came from how we were raised. And for all the pre-adopting parents, my guess is the majority have experienced some kind of trauma or significant loss or abuse or something in their own family, in their own upbringing. And if they haven't processed that, when they contribute to either their partner or their child, that generational trauma gets passed to our adopted kids. That lack of healthy attachment gets passed to our adopted kids. And I think feel like if we can get any parent, but primarily white adoptive parents with kids of color, to recognize the work that they need to do on themselves to get right first, I think we would eliminate so many of our challenges. Um, so that would be the first that would be the first thing. I think the second thing is they need to do the work. So in areas that they can control, yes, if you live in a predominantly white community, should you really be adopting a kid of color? So either don't I am that person who tells people that don't or move, move to a place. And if you don't or can't or won't, why is that? Is it because you're uncomfortable? Is it because logistically you're not willing to do it? Because the reality is that statistics show the radius of over an hour away from big cities and more densely diverse populated areas. That is where a lot of these white adoptive families have kids that are struggling. 
And if you can't move, commit to driving the hour into the city once a month to have your child's hair done by people who look like them so they can sit in community. And maybe you even sit for an, for that five-hour block where you're the only white person and you experience for that short, short, short amount of time what it feels like to be the other. And so those experiences, I feel like parents have to do that kind of work. They need to find resources. Here's a simple one, Beth. When you're researching, because we all do this, a pediatrician for our kids, if you could find a pediatrician that is the same race as your child, or at least just not a white pediatrician, why not? Somebody once in a training said, that's racist. Like, you can't tell people to do And I said to her, well, when you were researching to pick out your OBGYN, did you have a preference for a female? And she happened to. So is that sexist? Or is that just because it's your preference and it's what makes you most comfortable? And so in that situation, if we can find another adult role model that also happens to be a great pediatrician that has all the same skills and achievements as the next doctor, why not plop that person into our child's life? So that's just one example. But I feel like that kind of work is what family, all this work needs to be done before they get kids in their home. Because once they get kids in their home, the priority shifts of well, all parents' goals. Keep our kids alive, keep them safe, uh, teach them how to be good contributing members. But if we don't get that first part first, and then we get caught up in the sweat of just being parents, our kids are going to come out as teens and we're going to lose sight of the fact of what we need to do for these kids, which is in addition to regular parenting. I, as a parent of interracial children or transracial, depending on how you want to frame it, um, I can relate to that phenomenon of consideration about where we're living and where our children are going to encounter children who look like them, who have similar cultural backgrounds and values. Um, or even if there aren't kids that look like them, they're kids that are not just white. And so that awareness of going to tour schools and looking at the cubbies and the pictures going, oh, okay, like there, there are shades here. <laughs> um, so I can relate with that. And I think it's a really interesting an important challenge that you just put out for white adoptive parents in this idea of, okay, well, if we're making the assumption that that there's privilege and financial access here, simply by nature being involved in an international adoption, then what are we doing to use that privilege to create an environment that is going to be maximally supportive of this child? Um, so thank you for, for that point. For so for white parents, it sounds like what you're saying is we we want to get them in therapy. We want to have them read the books. What are the books? What are like, I, I have some of the books on my bookcase right here. I'm looking at uh, parenting an internationally adopted child. What are the books that you say, this is your homework? Right. So I can give anyone who wants to know an extensive list of resources. That's the beauty of parenting in 2021 is that when my parents were parenting in the 70s, there was no books, there were no blogs, there were no experiences from adult adoptees to listen to. They did the best they can, they, they could, um, and they did a lot of things right. But now there's no excuse for not having this information, for not having this knowledge. Um, one of the most important books I recommend to families, even before adopting, is The Primal Wound by Nancy Verrier. It talks about that one impactful trauma that's primal. So being separated from the woman who conceived, grew, and kept you safe for however many months until you were Earthside. And that concept is is heavy, is so heavy for 
pre-adoptive parents, they're oftentimes not ready to read the book. But here's the thing. If you can't get through this book, there's a lot more work that you need to do before you can say, yes, we want to adopt. I also recommend that for adult adoptees to better understand and be able to feel like somebody can relate to what they're feeling and naming it. Um, there are a number of blogs. My favorite is Harlow's Monkey. It's an unapologetic look at transracial adoption. Um, and however I could get you these resources um, in writing, I could be happy to do that, Beth. Um, like I mentioned, The Body Keeps a Score by Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. There are multicultural and inclusive books on the market on Amazon and bookstores everywhere. And all you have to do today is Google transracial adoption books for kids, for parents, for adults. The other p book that I highly recommend for um or not a book. The other resource I highly recommend for parents is to take the time to listen to adult transracial adoptees. And today with social media, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, podcasts. all podcasts, there's all this information at our fingertips. Listen to us. We are the products of what you're consuming, right? And and if something doesn't feel good or if it's uncomfortable or if you find yourself being defensive, Sit with that and process that because this could be your child one day. And so I think some of those pieces are the number one um, resource that I ask families to take a look at and consider before or even during their adoption. For people who are transracial adoptees, it sounds like based on what you've said that you really see this start to come to fruition, just this conflict once they hit their teen years. How does that play out and how do you support that clinically, knowing that they're also considering their potentially gender, sexuality, socioeconomic status, interests, friend group, like <laughs> drugs, like just all the all, things, all the things. <laughs> yeah. How, how do you make space for that in therapy? Um, because as you've already said and alluded to, I mean, there's this primal wound, so much grief and that that's really probably the time you're really seeing it bubble up. Um, I think the two the two most common points of entry of people that reach out for therapy is the pre-adolescent adolescent stage, which you're talking about, because, gosh, it is so hard to be an adolescent today. Um, and then the coming of age into adulthood. So maybe that early, mid, late 20s, um, or someone who's considering having a child themselves and feeling what that feels like for them. Um, and being able to do that in particular for the younger kids um, – it almost feels like these kids are able to exhale in an emotional connection that they've not had before. And what that looks like, Beth, is me just being able to acknowledge, like, it must be really hard to do this. It must be, you know, it's really normal to think about your biological mother. What do you do when you have those feelings? Because sometimes those are conversations that aren't had at home. Or if they are, because there are a lot of great white after parents who do initiate these conversations just out of their own normalcy. A lot of adopted kids have loyalty challenges and they don't want to talk to their adoptive parents about their feelings about their biological parents because they don't want to hurt their adoptive parents' feelings. So acknowledging that these things are there and that they're normal and it's healthy just because you're thinking about your birth family doesn't mean you don't love like the whole mutually exclusive possible. It's not or, it's and. I can love my adoptive family and grieve my biological family. So giving kids permission is basically how that's done. 
it is okay for you to have these feelings. It is okay to come here and talk about them. At some point, I want you to feel empowered to be able to share pieces of this when you're ready with your family. Um, and so I think from that perspective, jumping into that identity stuff, letting kids know, just like in any other disenfranchised population, what they're feeling is theirs. And you're here for it. You're here to support it. You're not here to tell them what to do, but you're there to hold them space-wise. For clinicians who are listening and going, oh, yes, I, you know, we talked about some points that are important and I need to learn more. Where do you send them and what does the perfect world look like for their own training and professional development? So like anything else, there are going to be different opinions on all the different options that are out there. Prior to this past year, there hasn't been any accredited training um, for clinicians to become adoption competent. The most recent one that did get accredited is through the Center for Adoption Support and Education, CASE. It's called TAC, Training for Adoption Competency. And this is an entire curriculum that's put together um, for clinicians, for people who are already clinicians, to become what they call adoption competent. I sometimes struggle with that competent word. I like to, I prefer to say adoption aware, adoption informed, um, because I don't know that any of us can ever fully be competent because everything is so fluid, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, so I think that is a, one of the first places to start. There's a lot of independent learning and opportunities online for whether it's CE credits, listening to podcasts like this, um, getting all other information, just like anytime we're interested in anything to just absorb as much as we can. Again, listening to adult adoptee voices, um, good, the bad, and the ugly, Be- getting the training, going to the trauma-specific trainings. A lot of adoption therapists need to make that transition to realize that this is very similar to trauma-informed therapy, um, that if we treat the adoption or life before adoption as the traumatic event or the ongoing trauma, then I think that's half the, half the battle. Along those lines, I can hear this colliding with the adverse childhood experiences study is adoption an inherent ace and then in your eyes is transracial adoption the inherent ace layered on top of it the short answer is yes in my opinion it is um and the the primary reason for that if i could just explain real quickly beth is when you look through those questions or the assessment process if we have to answer one or more of those questions with i don't know but it's possible because we don't always know what happens before adoption to that child. We don't know what happens in orphanages. So yes, from that perspective, the number one trauma that any human can experience has happened to these kids already. Yeah. I could sit here for so long and talk with you about this. Um, I'm so appreciative and grateful for myself and what you've taught me, also for what you're sharing with our listeners. And I think your voice is so important to shed light on this and to lean in to encourage all of us, particularly as as white clinicians to lean in to our our discomfort, our privilege, our awareness of how then we're working in the room with a, a child who is um, phenotypically different than we are and what the implications are. So let me start just by thanking you again. For our listeners that want to learn more about you and about your work, how do they do that um, and how they get in touch with you? Thank you so much for having me and for thinking that this is and acknowledging that this is such an important topic that a lot of us want to talk about, but we don't always have the courage to talk about. Um, one of the most important things that I hear from 
a child or an adolescent or a young adult or a family, when they come to me, if I see that they have a history on intake of previously being in therapy, I'll ask them, well, what worked and what didn't work? The majority of the time, it's the child telling me that therapist was just like other therapists. And when I dig down deeper, what that means is if they are not adoption sensitive, when a child is finally at the place where they can share their fears and talk about rejection and a fear of abandonment and et cetera, identity, and they're met with their therapist telling them, oh, but you have such a great family, or you're so lucky that, you know, you didn't have to stay in that orphanage, or oh my gosh, you have these amazing opportunities. That toxic positivity is so harmful. It's gaslighting our kids to the max. So for people to learn more information about adoption wellness for myself, our website is adoptionwellness.com. Um, we're on social media, Facebook as Adoption Wellness, Instagram as at the transracial adoptee therapist. Um, when you link to me, especially on IG, there are so many other followers of adult adoptees and clinicians um, that you can just sort of dip your toe in, check it out, think about it. We need we are such in a significant need for adoption-informed clinicians. All the ones that I know, we have waiting lists and waiting lists. And so what happens to these kids in the meantime? Well, thank you again. What a service you've done, not only for us today, but also for all of these families that have your expertise in your heart to care for them and assist them. So thank you again, Jacqueline. And for people who want to get in touch with you, what is your email address? Uh, my email is Jacqueline, my first name, J A C. L-Y-N at adoptionwellness.com. And if I can't help you, I will do my best to connect you with someone who can. Wonderful. Thank you again, Jacqueline. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Beth. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.